Hello and welcome to the podcast, Natalie Nahai In Conversation, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me and some wonderful guests as we explore how we might reimagine humanity in the face of accelerating technological advancement, ecological disruption and systemic change. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalienahai.com forward slash in conversation. And for additional books and resources, check out natalienahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I'm in conversation with Jared Ficklin, a designer and technologist with two decades of experience creating products and visions for major companies. An innovator by nature, he is always exploring new means for technological interaction and has a passion for unique interaction models, especially those involving interesting inputs and outputs like touch, multi-touch, voice, gesture, sensing and projection. The founding partner and lead creative technologist at Argo Design, Jared's philosophy is oriented towards thinking by making and delivering by demonstration, and he employs user experience simulation as a method for quickly bringing products to life. Having spent 14 years of his career at Frog Design, contributing to the visions, strategy, intellectual property and products of clients including HP, Microsoft, AT&T, LG, SanDisk and Motorola, Jared's work integrating technology into the design process at Frog led him to be named one of four Frog Fellows. An evangelist and co-creator of the cable car-based mass transport vision known as The Wire and a keen burner, Jared was the first to bring live fire to the TED stage. He speaks internationally as a creative technologist and futurist, and it was his passion for what technology might afford us when coupled with human creativity, ingenuity and heart that most excited me about being in conversation with Jared today. Jared, it's a pleasure to be with you. Whereabouts are you joining us from today? I'm joining you from my office here at Argo Design in our Austin office in uh, Texas in the USA. Oh, my magnificent hat. We're just complimenting you on your hat and the beautiful color that you collected. Well, it's your morning, my afternoon, so I'm hoping you're going to be a bit more alert than I am. But I would love to start by asking you what you think is going on in the global human psyche, if we can use that kind of frame. Oh, yeah. Let's start small. huh? <laughs> I think about this a lot as a product designer. I just I think on a global scale. And right now, I think there is a great deal of apprehension and anxiety about technology in general. And that is because we are now seeing a moment where we feel like we might be in competition with technology for the resources that really kind of ensure our survival. Now, I don't think everyone thinks of it so consciously on that level. Mostly they just see things that look like they have the same capabilities as they do. They see technology that maybe doesn't seem to add a lot to their life and they question, should it exist? And this is just building kind of anxiety because we've not really gone through this moment as a species before now. So let's talk about some of that. And I think part of the issue is that the change that we're experiencing, even though we've just scraped the surface, is very rapid. It feels very unpredictable, especially obviously in the world of technology. 
Can you set the scene for what's unfolding in terms of what this means from a product design perspective or from a futurism perspective? What's actually going on right now from an insider take? Yeah, I would say that we are in the midst of a technological sea change. Um, and they come every now and then. I think as humans, we always like to put a constant on things. We had a geological constant was a rule of science for a while. And then a volcano erupted in the middle of Mexico and grew like 3,000 meters in a matter of a few months. And we were like, oh, wait, we need to kind of reassess this idea that things are always just on a slow metered progression. Mm -hmm. Technology is the same. We like to talk about Moore's law and all these like cutting in half and doubling and doubling. But the truth is every now and then it sprints on us. And, it, and right now we're in the middle of one of those sprints and it's happening in three areas and it's quite a large one, right? In the area of what we call artificial intelligence, whereas we would more call machine learning, uh, very similar things, has uh, gotten quite capable and even the layperson has interfaced with what is now called generative AI <laughs> from large models. Another area of change is that we are seeing a decentralization of technologies, meaning the backbones of the internet are changing from how they work. The cloud model where you had services that were localized from a single pro provider to things like blockchain that spread data out and make it more visible and repeatable everywhere. That's kind of changing the way the business of the internet works. And that's creating some interesting changes. Uh, we just went through a whole round of crypto up and down and changing what the ownership of art means and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then the third one is that we're having, we have new devices coming towards us. This was the pinnacle of a device for a long time, but, you know, Apple just announced their fancy goggles and Magic Leap <laughs> has announced look through wearable mobile computers, as has um, Facebook with Quest having a very immersive VR setup. So we're seeing new types of devices. And then a second category of new devices would be robotics, which is becoming more capable than it has in a long time due to the other two technologies. And so as all of this sprints ahead of us, we've kind of recognized that we're behind the technology curve again. Yeah. Therefore, we don't know what to do. So I have a fun well, a fun way to think about this, we have for a long time dealt with the uncanny valley. <laughs> the uncanny valley was this principle where technology, computer graphics in particular, the more they resembled humanity, the creepier they got. <laughs> and the reason was, is they didn't get close enough to humanity. You could see the differences, but it was getting close enough that it was a really creepy kind of thing in robotics or in computer graphics like we saw in movies. Well, now computing in this latest sea change has gained so much capability that it now can exceed the capabilities of human perception. Video cards can render more colors than the rods and cones and the codecs of our brain are able to comprehend. Mm. They can do it at a frame rate that's faster than the biochemistry is able to take in to our mind. They can store more knowledge than all of humanity can store in its own uh, memories. Okay, and this um, part of the sea change has created this just general destruction of the uncanny valley. <laughs> computers can now talk to us in a way that we believe it's a human. Mm. 
they can now simulate our voices to a level that um, you wouldn't be sure I was talking to you or a computer that was copying my voice was. They're able to create imagery that's real. So we have crossed the uncanny valley and found ourselves on a, what I would call a plains of myopia, uh, meaning that the capabilities are so vast and grand now that we can't really comprehend all the possibilities in this moment. Mm. We have this very myopic view of like, oh, it could destroy humanity or it would be the greatest thing ever. The truth is, is that there's a lot of capabilities out there and we need to slowly walk forward and open our aperture in order to understand them all and employ the ones that will be really beneficial to humanity. So it's an interesting uh moment this sea change is bigger than the others and so that's making people anxious. I think also it's interesting hearing you talk about this one of the things I've realized over the course of the last few weeks speaking to different folks from different vantage points is that because it's such a huge sea change because it's such uncharted territory in the terms of in terms of what's actually physically possible not just in kind of the sense of what people have been imagining in sci-fi documentaries and books and films but actually it's here and it feels like it's real and almost I think some folks think think it's kind of unavoidable. One of the tricky things is getting enough vantage points from different people with different perspectives to make sense of the territory that we're kind of flung upon. And so I wonder what are some of the ways in which you are making sense of the rapid change that we're experiencing? What do you see as kind of maybe a map we can use to make sense of where we're headed? <laughs> I, this is the this is not the world of mapping yet. This is the world of exploration, and that's the tool we have been using here is exploration, right? This is a Lewis and Clark expedition, right? This is the Dutch uh, uh, ships sailing to the Orient for the first time. This is Marco Polo crossing the you know the Great uh, Middle East. This is you know all those classic stories of it uh, before the map came someone had to go and explore the territory and find where the edges are and that's where we are at now so the tool that we're using to make sense of it and is exploration and that's one of the roles of a product designer is to go out there and find what value a technology has for humanity or the user and put the, the two together um, in a way that's fairly productive and so we're having to sit in this position now where we've been far more presumptive in design than we have been before. And in my industry, for product designers, presumptive design is almost a dirty word. <laughs> since 2007 uh, and the release of the iPhone, we've really been just closing gaps in the large technology systems. And we say great value comes from closing small gaps, right? <laughs> But that was done through research and involving the user and employing convention and basically trying to pull out friction and insert moments of delight into something that was an everyday thing like checking your email. Well, now we're in an area where you can't really ask the user what to do with the technology because it's so unfamiliar, they don't know. And in Western yeah. cultures, when they don't know, they'll just lie to you. So we're <laughs> having to be far more presumptive and think, what if it could do this? What if it could do this? Can it do this? Oh, I've seen it do this. Maybe it shouldn't do that, right? So we, we're in an era of exploration. Our credo at, at Argo Design is think by making. We've always thought that the best way to investigate technologies is to stand up a version of it as quickly as possible to really get a feel for what it does. Fascinating. So I, I think that's the tool for us. Unfortunately, that tool is not available to everyone. Yeah. And now we're in a case where they someone can go to chat GTP. They can actually 
download the app and put it on their phone. And they can interface with this large language model, which is largely a probability-based predictive engine for what word comes next. Mm-hmm. And it's not human, and it doesn't function in a human way, and it doesn't use electrochemical processes that sit in a brain, and it, <laughs> it, it uses electricity that goes through a digital system. But they can sit there and put in a, a, a little prompt and get coherent nonsense back that's very believable And they're like, whoa, this feels like I'm talking to a human. So their exploration is leading them to a more anxious place, whereas ours is is a more practical place. Okay, so I like that. I really like the the framing of it as exploration because that kind of makes sense of all of the newness and the anxiety and kind of gives a stance from which to approach this, I guess, uncharted territory. So one of your areas of focus in your work at Argo Designs is the real-time internet. Can you explain what you mean by this term? Yeah. And a bit about how it might change the way in which we conceive of and interact with technology. Uh, yeah, the real-time internet is a futurism thought experiment. And it could be described as the third wave of computing because it seems like it might be wearable mobile computing, uh, which may become the fourth wave, right? For a long time, we <laughs> talked about the, the magic goggles you put on your face and look through and see mixed reality as the third wave of computing. But it looks like it might be the real-time internet. Mark Ralston and I kind of coined this term together. And what it describes is in very short order. Right now, people have been introduced to the concept with a large model that they can give a prompt, like write me a bedtime story involving an owl and a robot. And the large language model can take that prompt and through prediction of a, a, of a type, actually write you a story that's really good. And then you can say, give me an image of an owl and a robot. You could assemble a whole child storybook just off of a single prompt in real time. But it's going to be more than that. In very short order, you're going to be able to put together entire software experiences. These large language models are quite good at writing code, mm. right? So you could invoke a piece of software into existence for your purpose in a moment. Now, if you had some of those distributed technologies we were talking about earlier, so instead of using blockchain to stand up a bunch of crypto or NFT pyramids, instead, you could use it to store people's personal data <laughs> as a data marketplace and decouple it from the interface, So it's not owned by Meta or Facebook. It's actually owned by me. And I loan it to them under contract. They pay me with features and value or money. And then they give it back to my data repository. When you have those two things together, the ability for a computer to write an application based on a prompt and a decoupled centralized data marketplace, you now can exist in a real-time internet where you invoke experiences in real time. To give an example, I could be standing in front of a bookshelf and say, hey, Siri, Help me organize my books. And it will code together a little application on my phone that may have the steps where I pick up my camera. It will use the large models to recognize each book. It can then use another large model to go out and look up the value of the books, look up information on the books, and then it can figure out for me an order to do something. So it might ask me questions such as, do you want to organize them by size, by color, by value, by age, by author alphabetically, right? And I can say, you know, I can answer that question and they can say, step one, move this book here, move that book there. That's a piece of software that it'd be fairly expensive to write. Mm. And therefore, if someone did decide to write that software under the current model, they would put it in the app store and probably make it an ad supported 
piece of software, which would make it a very poor experience. Yeah. We all come across this all day. Lots of tiny casual apps in the app store that are supported by in-app purchases or by sneaking our data away and selling it to scammers or third parties, governments, who knows what, or uh, has a bunch of in-app purchasing stuff. You know, it's all of that can go away because you don't need a business model for these types of apps. You just subscribe to them as you would with your platform, right? So you invoke these experiences. Think about wanting to repair your washing machine. You've gotten all the way up to the point where you get stuck. So it's easy to take the panels <laughs> off and now you're to the bearing. You're like, oh, you could point your camera at it and say, hey, uh, create a video that helps me replace the bearing wow. on this washing machine. And it could create you a vi video by looking at all the YouTube videos and start right at that moment instead of making you wade through the, th or how about recipes? We've all gone to recipe websites and had to wade through the miles of search engine optimization text before we get down to just the ingredients and the steps to make it. And that's because they're trying to get you to wade through a bunch of um, uh, advertising in order to support the distribution of a recipe, mm. which is, by the way, cookbooks are really a modern invention. They were never meant to be a giant profit model. That's what the restaurant and the chef is for, right? So you can get the point. We now walk around in a real-time internet where very personalized experiences are invoked in real time. They have a quantumness to them. They don't even exist until I observe. And this will change the entire software landscape and hopefully for the better, because if it really does wash out all these, what Corey Doctor would call in shitified platforms. <laughs> yes which are purposely made worse to bring value, monetary value out of them to support the software side of it or the shopping side of it, then we can live in a much, much, much nicer world. It's so fascinating. On the one hand, I'm absolutely enthralled by the idea that we could literally invoke, kind of like you would a spell. There is something of the mystical quality around it, or the mage, this kind of archetype of plucking something that didn't exist before out of thin air and into reality, even if it's just a time-based reality, and then it disappears again. And then on the flip side, it's also this sense of, I'm, I'm aware of some of the huge disruption this will cause, of course, to people, to, you know, apps, ad revenue models, attention, creative problem solving. Where do you think the biggest impacts will be? <laughs> yeah, I'm really depressed about the people who will have to find a way to connect with their customers based on value <laughs> rather than just the fact that they can catch and capture their attention. Yeah, you know, half yeah. of Facebook exists just to sell mortgages to white people, right? <laughs> and they put us in these algorithmic bubbles and they use confirmation bias and they take a single event that happens in the news, usually political, and they write a hundred different forms of a story based on that truth. And each form is targeted for a specific demographic in order to train transfer confirmation bias over to some product like refinancing your mortgage down to 2.5% or something like that, right? That's a terrible model for creating a software experience that's supposed to be about sharing delightful moments with your friends and updating the world on where your social status is, mm -hmm. right? And similarly, why should I have to um, pay any amount of money or go through any amount of ads or give away all the contacts on my phone or a likeness of my facial representation to be sold to a government just so that I can have an app 
that simulates a bubble level so I can hang in yes, a yeah. picture straight. <laughs> yeah. I can tell you, you can code up one of those apps in two hours or less. These are not things that it's not the arbitrage here is insane. Mm-hmm. There's no reason that any of this software ever needed to be a way that someone made a living. Mm-hmm. They should make a living on bigger problems in software, like creating that data marketplace. And so I'm really encouraged by what this could do for us in the future. And I'm not depressed that marketers are going to have to find new channels towards our attention based on value. (laughs) So let's talk about value then, because one of the things that comes up quite a bit is the externalities of racing ahead with these technologies and things like the ecological cost, um, social, psychological cost. When you're thinking about ways in which we could reduce those, are there any things that you're seeing that give you cause for optimism, especially on the ecological side of things? Uh, Well, absolutely. As a product designer, I live five years in the future. Mm. (laughs) That's about how long it takes to bring your average product to market. And it means that it's really sucks to shop for a new phone (laughs) because... Even the new phone that everyone just saw get released is depressing to me because I know the features coming five years from now. But on the other side of it, you're exposed to things that that really can you can see will make an impact and you get the chance to maybe evangelize for them. There's a, a something we don't quite realize how pervasive our digital lifestyles have become, hmm. meaning that everything has been computerized. Um either from a sensing big data standpoint. So any factory floor now has tens of thousands of sensors reporting data back to a computer that's working through that data to figure out when a machine is going to break in order to fix it before it breaks. On our lives, almost all of our productivity, socialization, and entertainment is coming through screens Mm. and computers, right? Um, uh, What you used to go to the encyclopedia for, you now say, uh, hey, Echo, What's the definition of technophilia, right? Or whatever it is you're going to ask. The result is we're using a lot of electricity for computing. Uh, I think more than anyone quite realizes. And if you were to graph the use of that electricity, it makes quite a sharp line. And if you were to graph the addition of electrical supply, it actually makes not a very steep line. As humanity, we're in the process of converting systems. You know, we're shutting down nuclear power plants and coal-fired plant plants, spinning up sustainable energy. But the impact is that the actual amount of supply is not raising very fast. The two lines, according to the National Science Foundation, have the potential to cross over in 2040, meaning we'll be using more electricity for computing than we actually generate. We have to do something here to change the tune. One of the possibilities is analog computing and changing the architecture of computing. Hmm. Believe it or not, computing wasn't always digital. It started out analog, uh, measuring different voltages. I'll try and give the simplest example for a lay person here. If you have three volts on one wire and you have five volts on another wire and you put them together, eight volts comes out. (laughs) I've just added three and five. If you were to do that digitally, you have a register of eight values. So we represent a number with a byte. It takes eight values to represent an individual number. And then I represent a number with eight values in eight different registers, each one taking a certain amount of electricity to flip over and store. Hmm. 
Now I have to merge them together. Now, if these were voltages that I was trying to add together, well, first I had to convert three volts using an analog digital converter into a byte representation of it. So that's enough of the story to recognize that adding five and three together digitally takes a lot more electricity than doing it in analog. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, 10 to 100 times. So in five or six years, more people will be conversant with analog computers and the result. And what the result is, is moving intelligence down to the edge and not transmitting all that data up into the cloud where very expensive power hunger systems process it, but instead just trading in small insights. Hmm. Okay. So this means that you localize the intelligence, right? So you can have a little analog chip using almost no map power. In fact, it can be purely solar or just the vibrations of the machinery that it's monitoring. It can be monitoring those signals entirely analog with enough computing power and enough machine learning in a model to tell that those vibrations indicate that a bearing is about to go out. Not that they're vibrations. And then you just send a couple kilobytes of text that says a bearing is going out. And if you do that universally across a lot of our areas of life, we can really reduce the amount of electricity we're dedicating to computing by changing the whole architecture. And this will help us to continue. That is fascinating. And that's okay. Because trading in, in insights is what we want to do all along, mm -hmm. right? Wouldn't it be nice if my refrigerator, instead of telling me everything that was in it and what date it was put in there, it could just give me a couple of recipes of what I could make with what is in the refrigerator. The data on the left-hand side is a burden to me. The insights are an opportunity and an amplification to what I, I want to do on a daily basis. And this is all now going to be possible in very short order. These technologies that we were just talking about, especially GI, can pull off this trick. In fact, I believe that that exact feature holding up your iPhone camera to a group of ingredients on a table, it being able to recognize the objects and produce a list of recipes for food you could make with those ingredients, I think that's going to be coming out in like iOS 17. Like it's an actual feature now. <laughs> okay, so speed of change is clearly something that's on the radar. Another of the questions that I know is quite close to your heart is how we might balance our technological and biological evolution moving forward. So maybe I can get you to explore a little bit what that means when you talk about that. Because the first time you phrased that to me, I was like, this sounds like transhumanist territory. Well, where, where are we going? What do you think? What's on the horizon? No, we're getting there. You're right. Um, or like Sapiens, right? Mm -hmm. the, the book. Uh, if you have a link tree after this podcast, it's one of my favorites in that you can make an argument that humans as a species left biological evolution behind around 20,000 years ago when we began using tools. Hmm. And that we've been, in, we've been involved then in a co-evolution process. There's still a certain amount of biological evolution, but largely technological evolution has taken over, meaning our use of technology and tools has been more responsible for guaranteeing our survival hmm. than our biological attributes, right? And so this would be the balance of biological and technological evolution. Science fiction has played with this for a long time, yeah. right? Yeah. You have the the, the Vulcans, oh, truly yeah. intellectual speaking <laughs> species. You have the Borg, a almost computerization of, of humanity, right? Well, we're at an, at an inflection point now where really 
people are worried, I'm worried, that we're leaning really heavily into technological um, evolution being our sustaining force. Hmm. Um, people are even talking about uploading, like Ray Kurzweil and even Elon Musk occasionally, talking about uploading our consciousness into a computer and becoming purely intellectual and technological creatures, hmm. right? Living in the matrix, so to speak, right? I don't think that's a sustainable future for humanity because our resources needed for survival in that condition are great. But also we leave apart all the biological attributes of humanity, which I think are responsible for a lot of things that we would describe simply as the word love, as opposed to a lot of things we would describe as the word intellect. And I don't think that's something we want to leave behind. And I think it's causing us to make very poor choices at time. For instance, to continue with biolo our, our biological selves and bring them forward in balance with technology, we need to respect the biodiversity of Earth. Yeah. We need to think about the romantic aspects of business or technology itself. We may perhaps need to give it more biological attributes like the ability to forget and forgive. Right. Things that would keep us humans rather than involve us into a new perfectly technological species. I believe that a lot of attention should be paid to this idea that we don't want to just advance ourselves technologically because we can. I believe that technological forces are so powerful, they could quickly overwhelm humanity and um, serve themselves. Not that those forces don't exist in biology. They do. In the book Sapiens, there's a great article made, uh, uh, made, did we evolve wheat or did wheat evolve us? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because wheat has largely been one of the most successful grasses in the world because it we became dependent on it or it got us to be dependent on it. You know, anyone who owns a cat also has this debate on a daily basis of who's evolving who, right? Um <laughs> But technology, you can see a similar thing happen with wheat, but technology is more powerful, especially now that it's a point that emulates us. So I think it's right to worry that would we become in competition with those same resources and would we win? And should we subject all the biological parts of humanity in order to do that competition? Or while we still have a choice, should we govern technology to make sure that the pace of biological evolution is respected as well? So it's that point of governing I know there's been a lot of talk around regulations. Obviously, here in the EU, there's some AI regulation that's been coming through and conversations around what it would mean to create, almost like we did with nuclear arms, some kind of global agreement where these arms are maybe held and not used. What do you think is the potential for something similar or alternative to that to prevent the worst runaway tech arms race to the bottom do you is i mean or is that even something that you see as a possibility do we have reason to be anxious and to fear or do you think actually it's not even remotely within the realm of possibility that it's as dangerous as some folks think um <laughs> no i think the technology is dangerous but not in the way that's been reported widely in the media um it's dangerous because humans have, uh, are, are fictional creatures and have a great ability to rely on something that seems good enough. Mm -hmm. um, and um, even the current crop of technology with its probabilistic advice, um, it's not based in fact. And so if it was employed in a mission critical area and someone relied on the output, 
it'd be very easy to make a mistake mm. that could really affect humanity. Now you multiply that times tens of thousands of place, and now you put two or three degrees of separation. So I think I'm not relying on it because I'm a service person working on a nuclear power plant and I need some advice on how to fix this certain solenoid or whatever, and I ask a GAI to generate it. That would be a direct, right? But maybe I'm going just to a, a, a system that purports to be an expert and some of their technical papers were run through a GAI and I have no knowledge of. This is how it is dangerous, right? Is that at the moment, we do not have the systems in place to work out the coherent nonsense or the hallucinations that they've come to be called. And, it's in, and not only that, but people are relying it too much on it thinking the way we do. And it doesn't. It doesn't think. And it does not come about the next word in the same way that we come about the next word. And therefore, can it ever truly be sentient in the way that we would understand? The Turing test is no longer a enough of a, of a, of a study here. And so I think that that's a real issue. Now, tactically, what do we do about that? Hmm. Right? I don't yeah. think governments are going to be able to um, regulate this in any sensible way. Not that there shouldn't be regulation, but I, I think the regulation should take a different form. So if I, I'll get both tactical shortly, and then I'll, I'll get philosophical, if you if you will. Please. <laughs> On the tactical part, like, you know, how do we help with this issue of the dissemination of misinformation, right? Yeah. And I've always thought the answer here is, and the problem is, the monopolized markets of the size of big tech. And some of these regulations that we're trying to protect consumers with, with like GDPR and others, are actually creating a entrenched position for the big technology companies because that compliance is so expensive that it's crowding out any upstarts, hmm. okay? And so you can continue to regulate that way all you want. And I would say that's a security point of view. You need to secure my data. And I'm going to force you to use it correctly. But that's that's considering privacy as a right. And that means the only way to, to defend it is, is with um, security. I think privacy as a virtue is a better model. Privacy as a virtue means that, that you're going to know, but it, it's a virtuous action to pretend like you don't know or to use my data in a good way. Hmm. It has to come from purpose for us, this to work. Now, if you were to build regulations in that type of viewpoint, you would look at the big monopolies and be like, oh, we need to decouple here. They own too much of the market. So I would pass a regulation that said, if you are a social media company, and we'll define it in the same way we define transportation service networks in order to regulate Uber and Lyft, I'm going to say that you cannot um, store a user's data. In other words, I would create a regulation that the only answer to was to create a data marketplace, nice. right? And I would decouple those two businesses in the same way that we took browsing the web away from the operating system when we had anti-monopoly actions against Microsoft at the dawn of the internet era, right? So now the, the platforms that disseminate information, they have to compete on a different basis. They have to compete on the interface, right? I'm always going to show it to you with rose-colored glasses. I'm the interface that shows it to you true. I focus on food photography. I have less friction. I have, I'm going to, you know, this. Meanwhile, you have a data marketplace that has to compete on the integrity of your data, 
maximizing the value of your data to you, Mm -hmm. the security of your data, right? And this means that we can start building contracts between you and your services, right? So now if I forgot my jacket in a gap, right, in the middle of New York City when I was shopping, right, I left it at Barney's, right? But I don't know where I left it. But someone can now make an app that says, find your jacket, right? I can invoke it with my wearable mobile computer. I'm looking through my my classic, Siri, help me find my jacket. It codes up an app, right? It then asks the data marketplace, I need the CCT, the closed circuit camera um, footage for this area in order to locate Jared's jacket. And they go, okay, under that contract, I'll give you that data. And then it goes to the marketplace and says, I need Jared's likeness data so I can scan for him in this footage in order to find his jacket. And I'm only going to use it for that. Now we can have a contract together for that. Now they have my likeliest data and this camera data. They can actually scan all the footage. They can see that I left my jacket in Barney's and they can return the result. You left your jacket at Barney's, pay us $2. And then they hand the data back to the marketplace or the marketplace says, hey, I need that data back now. This is the way, if this sounds familiar, and then you had a cool feature with your data, and I didn't have to give away my rights to my data forever for them to use it whatever purpose they want, like giving it to a a government camera system to recognize me facially where I'm walking throughout the town, right? Mm -hmm. If it sounds familiar, it's because it sounds like the banking system. (laughs) Data has value, and we need a data marketplace, and we need a, a, a vernacular, a language around data. Think about money. I can spot you a 20, I can loan you a 20, I can give you a 20, I can charge a 20. All that language, each one represents a different type of contract that we all learn by growing up in capitalist society. So we have a rich way to talk about the exchange of money. We should have the similar thing with data. Right now it's binary. Can I have rights to your data or not? Hmm. But it should be just as rich. I should have likeness data. I should have community data. I should have personal data. All these, you know, just like we have cash, credit, you know, uh, a mortgage, like all these things. So then we can use the value of our data to create valuable features for ourselves, not worrying that it's going to spread out into the, into the world and not be used in a way that won't be valuable to us. I mean, this sounds like it could be completely a complete rethinking of how big companies to date have made their money. Do you see signs of businesses already starting this kind of project that's kind of getting off the ground? Because also the other thing it would need, presumably, is permissions from other, I guess if we think of it as like nodes on a network, other bodies that are willing to trade in that way. So it's a systemic shift you're talking about. It is. And there are people attempting to put data marketplaces today. There are a few that you can transact with. It's just like the early days of cash money. Mm-hmm. When the U.S. first started printing cash and the king was upset about it (laughs) (laughs) as a way to avoid taxes, right? It looks like that. You had to convince people that it was valuable. And that's going to be a long process that I think is going to be a combination of regulations where people might take a step back and go like, why am I regulating way out at the ends when I could regulate the fundamentals of the market, right? But that's going to take a brave politician who's really, really willing to stick it in the side of the big five, right? Uh, And then people are going to have to learn. So I do think it's a longer thing, but I think what will bring it about is not like this pushing the market first, but the fact that these combined technologies are going to bring us one step closer to the abundance, which is a science fiction concept of when 
goods and services are so inexpensive to manufacture that they kind of wipe out the needs and wants of survival, the lower levels of Maslow's hierarchies of need. And if if you are a communist or a socialist out there wanting to kill capitalism, work on the abundance because that's what will do it. The minute I can just put my hand up and a drone delivers a hammer and it's an exquisitely uh, a hammer that uh, Japanese foundry formed and I can hit that nail in the wall and hang my picture on it and put my hand back up and a drone whisks it away. That's Cory Doctorow's thought experiment called the drone hammer, right? You only then need 100,000 hammers to serve all of like humanity because we all have a hammer sitting in the drawer yeah, yeah, not being used except for once a year when we go to hang a picture, right? That's a very poor use of resources in general, right? So as we step towards this abundance, capital is going to have less and less influence on how things are moving around and we're going to have to look for new systems. Well, data is sitting right there as a possible system to of exchange of value and to the apportionment of, re, of what resources are left to be apportioned, right? So I think it's going to come from both sides. If we employ our robots and our GAI correctly, we can amplify humanity, balance biological and technological uh, evolution to a state where we enter a new golden era of the abundance and therefore these systems can come to bear. Okay, so talking about drones dropping off hammers that are beautifully forged from exotic places, you've also spoken about the peak technology curve. And that sounds remarkably like that if you've got drones hanging about, just like ready to give you what what your heart's desire (laughs) might be. Can you explain what the peak technology curve is and what it means for humanity? Okay, you're not wrong. You've Caught me in my own trap of logic. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. This is how we advance these pop philosophical notions of, <laughs> of how to like solve the, the product designer's conundrum, which is what we're doing. Because as a product mm-hmm. designer, we are asked to create all these things or experiences. And sometimes we sit here and we go like, why? Yeah. Why does anyone need this? Why does anyone need a cooler with a blender, with a Bluetooth speaker, with an air conditioning vent, with a cassette deck? <laughs> Why am I even designing? And you can keep you up at night as a product designer wondering, will this technology do anything to advance humanity? What's even worse is when you're working on a billing flow or a checkout flow and you're and your client is asking you to like insert some area where it might manipulate another purchase, right? Mm-hmm. Or uh, if you're working on something that the requirements are clearly in shitification, here's a recommendations page, but here's the area where the advertisers can go and look like they're the recommended product rather than the advertised product, right? And so I invented something called the peak technology curve, and it's based on Kurtzwald's computational curve, right? So if you would chart the release of a technology and whether it had anything to do with advancing humanity. Hmm. And I think for the first time in a few hundred years, we're seeing the curve flatten and we're sensing that. And the reasons are because the components of manufacturing have gotten very inexpensive. And they used to be so hard to bring a product to market that the place you started was, would it create value for users? And it was a pull into the market. Once you sensed enough value, that's when you employed the product designers and the engineers, and you've got a whole factory set up, and you ran a line of the product, and you marketed it, and you got it to people. Well, now it has inverted. I can imagine a product. I can have GAI render it, 
knowing that the modular manufacturing can probably put it together in real time. Some things can be 3D printed. The factories have gotten so easy at reconfiguring. The resources are all in place that I can now push things on the market. Anyone who flicks through their Instagram feed or their TikTok feed faces this every day. Things that seem like they were created just for them that have a four to six week de delivery time, which seems insane in this market, is a cue that it doesn't actually exist until you order it. Oh, that's so interesting. Pretty soon we're going to have deep fake products, things that <laughs> actually don't exist until you order them, right? And that's making us really nervous because we're seeing that peak technology curve um, flatten. We've had this 200-year history of technology always amplifying humanity. And now we're seeing things that we recognize do nothing for humanity. And some of them actually just serve technology itself in a circular cycle, right? And once we reach a year where more than half of any product foisted on the market does nothing to advance humanity, I'm going to say we've reached peak technology, right? At that point, um, you need new systems than the current ones for deciding what goes on the market, right? I like Cory Doctor's Rapture of the Nerd. This is like the fifth time we've invoked his name. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, He's great. Not sorry. Actually, um, in his book, Rapture of the Nerds, the protagonist at the beginning of the book is headed off to product jury. They've been called to serve on a jury of 12 of their peers. It's such a technically technologically advanced society that they can just invoke products. But people have to pitch them like the Dragon's Den or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> and they have to say, this would be... And then the jury has to approve it before it can go on the market. And if they say no, it just goes off into the ether and it's never released. We actually might need to formalize these things a little better in terms of what gets on the market uh, than we are. But we have the... Now is the moment where we can look at this and decide, you know... Which direction is the peak technology curve going to turn? Is it going to flatten or do we go ahead and keep it steep? And I think based on, on that, it's probably a really nice place in the conversation to ask you about the set of principles that you've developed, essentially, to help people to evaluate the nature of the tech they're employing. So for product designers, for people thinking about creating prompts to generate an AI version of whatever it is that they want to sell to the market. Can you talk us through some of these prompts? Because they are very poignant, especially at this moment in time. Absolutely. Um, thank you for the prompt, because <laughs> I, I do love talking about this. Um, again, so, to, so in order to saw you know, 25 years in product design, I've experienced this product designers conundrum a lot. And in order to solve it, I developed a personal philosophy that I call technophilia. Mm-hmm. And what technophilia states as a premise is that it's okay to love technology so long as you love humanity equally or more, mm. right? To not allow yourself to get fascinated with what technology can do to the point that you forget your own or others' humanity along the way. And um, with it comes a set of principles, Right. What, OK, so we've illustrated a lot of the anxieties and the issues. What can I do about it as a lowly product designer or technology creator or even like layperson? Well, first of all, um, technology should exist in service of humanity, not in service of itself. So it's something you can use to evaluate any deployment of a platform like a social media. Right. If the like exists so that you look at more posts so that you'll post something to look at more posts, that's circular. Yeah, yeah. It serves only the technology itself. Right. So that's something where you might ask the question, should the flow exist that way or should it always exist in a way where it actually 
amplifies your ability. Secondly, technology should seek to amplify humanity, not emulate humanity, hmm. right? So should I build something that can, you know, should I build a humanoid robot or should I build an exoskeleton to put it at the hmm. simplest level, right? Hmm. Should I build something that writes storybooks or should I build something that assists someone to get out of writer's block, right? Hmm. If I build something that takes over a job from the human, does it create other jobs for a human since work builds human soul, right? So in, so technology should amplify, not emulate humanity. And there's a place of debate there. Next, it should seek to build authenticity, not influence. Okay, this is from the mindfulness movement that an authentic self really states what their needs are in a present and a truthful way, right? An influencer is a social media term where someone, by taking upon an appearance that does not reflect who they are, hmm. seeks to influence the attention and choice of others, right? Yeah. Technology has, has created a mess by amplifying the ability of humans to influence one another rather than amplifying their ability to present an authentic version of themselves. So technology should seek to build authenticity, not influence. Next, technology should seek to create presence rather than escapism, okay? That's I like mixed reality. <laughs> Virtual reality, I'm not so sure about because you immerse so totally in a screen, right? Another, that, that you don't, you're not even participatory in society where why not be heads up and present with the amplifying force of digital information? Or another example is like, we have a huge debate here in the United States about immigration. Hmm. Right. It's a very difficult debate anywhere it takes place in the world. Right. This notion of population. Should I should should we be focused on fixing where they're moving from their home or should we be taking in and offering them something new or should we actually be attracting them in, which does damage to where they're coming from? There's uh, such a sticky debate in the U.S. A lot of our agricultural crops are picked by people who come over our borders legally or illegally. Right. And it's not a pretty picture. Most of the cases when this happens. Well, some people are building robots to pick crops, which allows us to not worry about that immigration problem. So shouldn't we engage in the hard work of fixing that problem rather than use technology as a form of escapism to ignore mm. it? Mm. That's a question that should be asked. So technology should seek to create presence rather than escapism. And the last one I kind of defined earlier, which is. We should treat privacy as a virtue rather than a right. We are fictional creatures at heart. We require gossip to even exist and in the size of the cohorts that we do. And treating privacy as a right makes that very difficult. Um, but a lack of privacy is also something that doesn't allow us to thrive. So we have to be priests, The, you know, um, in a way, it's okay for me to know what you had for lunch, that you had this sloppy cheeseburger, even though <laughs> you present yourself as a healthy wellness person, <laughs> as long as I act like I don't know, right? Maybe I'm using it in an app to give you advice about better heating, eating or how many calories you just slammed your body with or what it's going to do to your blood sugar, all that amplifying information. But I don't then broadcast that to the world or use it to sell you ads for exercise machines that aren't going to do anything to help your cholesterol level, right? Because none of those would be virtuous acts. And we could architect this right into the systems themselves, right? The way we build our hardware, right? 
Can we institute forgetting? Can we institute forgiveness? Can we use this data marketplace to let you be the choice of how much privacy you want to have in any given moment, right? Uh, it, it could be in our system. So privacy as a, as a virtue rather than a right is a much easier way to transact and have all the features we want without all the negative out- outcomes. So that's technophilia in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> And it helps me like get past that moment when I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, am I foisting a disaster upon humanity? And in little choices as a product designer, we actually have an amazing amount of control to like, you know, if we have two choices ahead of us, why don't we take the one that follows these principles? Because it's more likely to build, um, keep humanity at the center of things. And the really the biological aspects of humanity, the love, the delight, the pleasure, as opposed to the purely intellectual or technolo- or like place technology above humanity. Like humanity should not have um, eight square miles of beautiful mountains in Montana because we need to build more electric cars. So let's mow them down for the cobalt and build more electric cars. That's a terrible choice. Terrible idea. <laughs> So we're kind of coming towards the end of this section, but I do want to ask because the way in which you approach technophilia and these principles and the designer's conundrum um, and even your your perception of what a potential kind of parallel or entangled biological and technological trajectory for humanity could look like, it seems to me a very humanistic and actually, you know, now you've spoken about the mountain ranges of Montana, kind of also quite a flourishing of life orientation for someone who could be perceived as a technologist. And so I'm curious, how do you root yourself? Is there something that you root yourself in, a cosmovision or a perspective or a practice that enables you not to get swept up in the often kind of dissociative, abstractive routes that people go down when they they spend so much time developing technology? You seem quite grounded. How do you retain that sense of connection with the embodied self, with humanity, and with the wider web of life? Well, I was raised religious, okay? (laughs) Uh, And that didn't really work out. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't want to let go of the spiritual sides of this. And realizing that humanity is creatures of fiction, I kind of like, if you would allow me, I kind of created a myth, (laughs) <laughs> I call it the Solarian myth okay. to help guide some of these decisions because I am profoundly a humanist. I think humans are part of nature and I think nature is one of the beautiful creations of the universe and mm. I think it gifts us with love. I think on top of that, we built the ability to have technology, which also is a part of intellect, which I think is a fundamental force in the universe. And that allowed us to build ourselves up to be more of us, right? And so, I don't know, I was struggling with this on the way back from, of all places, Burning Man. <laughs> and uh, I was like, you know what? The, the real inconvenient truth, if you will, is truth. It, it really seems, I was like, I was going to be giving a session at South by Southwest with Georgia Francis King, who at the time was working at Quartz Magazine, about truth or fiction, what motivates humanity. Because as product designers, we always put out these fictions that are near truths. They're these fake products that everyone's like, shut up and take my money, right? And we use that to show how good our design skills are. 
But do they do anything to motivate humanity except for wanting that technology, right? <laughs> the truth is um, fictions motivate humanity more than truths. <laughs> We're creatures of fiction. That was our evolutionary um, strategy. And so I kind of looked at that and looked at the state of things in the world and, and wrote this Solarian myth, which basically is kind of states perhaps a new purpose for humanity. Uh, very ambitious or, or very stupid thing to do. I don't know which. Uh, but it goes like this. <laughs> I'll tell it now. Before I tell it, I'll just let all your listeners know this is a lie. <laughs> right? But at the time the universe was about to expand at the last Big Bang, she sat there and looked at all the mo uh, atomic components and tried to arrange them in a way that <laughs> when it blew up and scattered out into the universe, there would be nodes where life would take place and that those nodes of life would evolve to a point with the components that they created um, intelligent life, which produced love. And now they had nodes of love throughout the universe. And that soon enough, those creatures that were producing love would evolve to the point to discover intellect and then technology. So that was now intellect. And that love and intellect are actually physical forces that are responsible for sustaining the universe. They are these phylotic threads that explain some of the spooky actions, like why do some galaxies move faster than the other that we have up till now tried to explain with dark matter or gravity waves or whatever, right? And um, so she's literally trying to build a scaffold that will sustain her so she doesn't have to go through another big bang cycle or expand forever into a gray goo and reincorporate in another dimension, right? Well, if you look at it that way, Earth is one of these nodes, okay? And the creatures on Earth that are most capable of producing love and intellect, not the only ones who produce it, but the most capable are humans. Our purpose is to create as much love and intellect as possible in order to sustain the universe in, in a long way. And that, that's an interesting thing. And, and why, why even have a, a purpose? The reason is that we are now a global planetary information system and we are a planetary species. We call ourselves humans. We have all these beliefs and different purposes that are on a localized basis. And this is creating outcomes that are undesirable. Take the big, um, biggest thing facing humanity right now, which is climate change, right? One of the largest things facing humanity is climate change, right? Without purpose, we're all coming up with our, with very different purposes. We're all coming up to answers to this problem that match our purpose. And therefore we have a great variety of answers and they pull in all directions and they cancel thing, each other out. Well, if you were to apply the Solarian myth to something like climate change, you can start to come up with some interesting answers. All right, the most inconvenient truth in climate change is what is the correct temperature of the earth? No one seems to have an answer. <laughs> it seems to be what the temperature of the earth was the day we discovered climate change. But if you apply the Solarian myth, you can come up with an answer. The answer is, well, it's the temperature that would create the most love and intellect mm -hmm. as possible, which means it's the temperature that would sustain the most humans possible in a way that each human was able to create as much love and intellect as possible, right? And then you would start applying that practice to reality. Um, what sustains humanity is biodiversity, okay? It's the one thing we can't live without. 
I find it very curious how in this current moment attacking climate change, we're tra trading rare earth metals for biodiversity. In other words, we're mining down the jungles of Africa for cobalt and we're like fracking lithium out of the dry lake beds of Peru. Um, when there's a couple asteroids out in the Kuiper belt that supply all the lithium and cobalt we ever need, they're rare earth metals. They are not rare solar system metals. So that's the heart of it. We think of ourselves as the earthling, but more accurate, we're sol solarians. We don't have to solve our problems with just the resources of the earth. We can solve them with the resources of the entire solar system, right? So then we can bring ourselves a picture where we can preserve what actually sustains humanity and is the rarest thing in the solar system, which is biodiversity. We've been to Mars. We now know how fragile life is. It can exist on another planet and blink out like that. It's a lot of uh, iron there. <laughs> so we could electrify on the off-world resources and, um, and choose this moment to preserve as much biodiversity. And we also have an answer for what the correct temperature of the earth is. So we can begin studying what temperature would provide the greatest biodiversity to create a soil engine in order to colonize other planets, in order to expand the number of humanity, number of humans, in order to create more love and intellect for the universe. It's a myth, but... Like, it's a clarifying myth, and it's my own personal, I don't know, movement or thought or philosophy um, that um, uh, I feel grounds me. Because it always gives me something to judge my own personal actions on. Before I take this next step, how much love and intellect will it create? Will it be unbalanced in intellect? Will it be unbalanced in love? Or will it progress both forward? And it's a, it's just kind of a nice way to move forward. Beautiful. I like that myth. It sounds like a very compelling one. <laughs> <laughs> Every now and then I have people that they allow me to talk about this. It's usually, <laughs> uh, you know, during a happy hour or something. And they're like, they're, uh, a phrase I've heard before is that that's... Um, that is definitely not true, but I'll believe it. <laughs> it's, it's kind of why you, you're okay believing. <laughs> no, well, why not? Um, so before we move to the short round, let's just end this section by asking you where people can find out more about that myth, about your work. What's the best place for people to find you? The myth you're going to have to find me for, uh, mm -hmm. which is uh, on the, the, the socials or or you know, after a conference or something. This is a rare moment where I actually discussed it in public. So <laughs> there's not like a, a website or anything dedicated to it. But okay. um, as far as the work, argodesign.com. Mm -hmm. um, I am one of the founding partners at Argo Design. It's where all this product design happens. You can see our portfolio, our vision pieces, uh, uh, and, and such as that. And you can also follow me on socials. I'm either uh, Twin Rock, which is T-W-I-N-R-A-W-K, or Jared Rock, J-A-R-E-D-R-A-W-K. Jared Ficklin itself is a very Googleable name. <laughs> Most of it's me. If there's a mustache, it's me. If not, it's the other Jared Ficklin, who I believe is a barrister. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. So people can find you there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Natalie Nahai in conversation. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do pop over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen and give a rating and a review. It really does mean the world to me to read your support and it keeps me going to create more seasons, especially as this is a self-funded project into which we pour hours of work 
creating, recording, and producing each episode. To find out more about my work and how to get involved in my projects, you can sign up to my newsletter at natalinahai.com, explore additional books and resources at natalinahai.com forward slash resources, and you can follow me on Instagram and LinkedIn at natalinahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing, thank you for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.